Welcome back to the 74th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories. Our first one talks about how Google is taking a, a new approach to stop misinformation, how this new AI boom will actually benefit Google and Microsoft, and a article talking about how diversity for the sake of diversity is actually aiding the powerful elite, so to speak. And we'll get to that one at the end. And of course, we'll finish everything off with our daily delight. A story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now that's enough rambling for me. Let's jump into our daily debate. So Occupy Wall Street caused a shift in this nation. And those that didn't like it are desperate to point out what happened, and they're desperate to point the finger at somebody else. While we do live in an era with companies that can control what we see and how often we see it, we are the ones who give them that power at the end of the day. If another option was presented to you, would you use it? Would you leave behind the Googles, the Microsofts, or any of the other big companies and pursue something different? Or are they too ingrained in the way that you go about living your life? I'd love to hear your opinions on this because I personally think I would say, yes, I would leave behind Google if there's a good alternative, like the Brave browser. I downloaded the Brave browser the first second I heard about it. You get paid for looking at different content, for selectively choosing to look at ads that you actually want to look at. But at the end of the day, I still have Google Chrome installed on some of my other computers. I have DuckDuckGo as well, but there's something very convenient about Google. So from a purely idealistic point of view, I would say, yes, of course I would get rid of them, but there is a certain level of convenience that comes with them, and I think there's a certain level of acceptance in our society for what they do and how they do it. So I just want to know what everybody else's opinions are, or do you not even think about it? Do you not even care? You're just like, Alex, what do you mean? I just I use Google. That's all I know. That's all I need. I'd love to hear your opinions down there in the comment section. All right, our first article comes from AP News. Google to expand misinformation pre-bunking in Europe. So if you've listened before, you definitely know my opinions about Google. I don't necessarily love them. I think they are a company that does a good job at what they're trying to do, which is collect a lot of information but I also believe that they have a lot of control over the means of what we see, like I mentioned earlier, and how we conduct certain search practices or even how we conduct our lives. The subtle influences of, oh, let me search this information, the best way to do blah. And they serve up 10 different articles telling you how you can live your life. They could subtly influence that. And they could all make you lean towards a vegetarian diet because maybe someone at Google went rogue and they changed the algorithm to prefer vegetarian content to meat content. I'm not saying they actually do that. And I'm not saying that they would want to do that. But, I mean, in theory, they could. So I think they control a lot of the information. And they're also providing their services for free so that they can get your information and use it to sell ads or even build new generative AI systems. So 
I think that at the end of the day, we can acknowledge Google is a great thing, but they have their faults as well. But there's a new ad campaign, kind of an experiment that they're running in Germany. Quote, Google will initiate a new campaign in Germany that aims to make people more resilient to the course of effects of online misinformation. The tech giant plans to release a series of short videos highlighting the techniques common to many misleading claims. The videos will appear as advertisements on platforms like Facebook, YouTube, or TikTok in Germany. A similar campaign in India is also in the works. It is an approach called pre-bunking, which involves teaching people how to spot false claims before they encounter them. The strategy is to gain support among researchers and tech companies. Quote, there's a real appetite for this solution, said Beth Goldberg, head of research and development at Jigsaw, an incubator division of Google that studies emerging social challenges. Quote, using ads as a vehicle to counter a disinformation technique is pretty novel, and we're excited about the results. End quote. So let's take a step back and let's think about pre-bunking here. And there are obviously some good things, and there's some, in my opinion, some bad things that could be extrapolated from this. So one of the good things that the article points out is that this can be cheaper than traditional forms of moderation and responding to misinformation. And at the end of the day, it's much more widespread. So they don't actually have to respond to specific claims or ban specific claims and spend time and money putting people looking for these pieces of misinformation. And rather, they can just put out a few videos a year saying, hey, be on the lookout for these different sneaky techniques that people may use, of twisting of statistics or dancing around certain questions that may be asked about it. And then that allows them to say, okay, yeah, we've, we've taken the steps. We've made sure that the people are informed how to spot this misinformation. So then they don't have to spend as much money on the back end. And it won't allow these claims of misinformation to get off the ground, essentially. This is what's called pre-bunking. They're preemptively trying to stop these narratives from taking hold and spreading. One of the cons of that is, though, centralized information. Or, and I mean, honestly, it won't stop moderation because at the end of the day, these narratives still will take hold. Even if some people are trained against it, they will take hold and they'll still have to moderate. But this is a centralization of information because if they choose, if they choose to address specific topics, they're the ones setting the narrative. They're the ones saying that this information is accurate and this other information is not. And if they are preemptively doing this with pre-bunking, if they're including this and making videos that specifically address certain types of misinformation, say they know that certain types of hesitancies towards certain medications is prevalent in the society, they're maybe testing these pre-bunking for general use, just, hey, this is how you spot misinformation, but then they could start targeting it and saying, oh, well, actually, you may see claims about this certain medication coming out. No, don't worry about it. And it really, at the end of the day, could be used as a way to stop you from even allowing alternative claims to be proposed. So this is a tool. These pre-bunking videos are supposed to be a tool to allow you to think more critically about the content that you're observing, to actually take a more cautious approach 
when analyzing some of these things. And that's great. I think in, in premise alone, it's amazing. But I take that back. In premise alone, in that premise alone, the way I just explained it, that's good. We want our people to think critically. But if they start using it specifically in very targeted ways, then it'll actually discourage critical thinking because people will just see these videos that they've been trained. Oh, these are the misinformation videos. They're trying to make sure that I'm not affected by misinformation. And then they won't even allow an alternative narrative to come into their mind because they've been told, no, 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 this is current misinformation or future misinformation. And we know it's wrong. And we're just telling you how to not get caught up in it. So it may be good now, but it could be used in the wrong way. It's kind of a slippery slope. And I know that is a fallacy. And I'm not saying just because they can do it, they will. But it is a possibility. And it's something that we need to consider when looking at these practices and them rolling out these programs, not just in Germany, but in India and probably in the U.S. here soon. And I think that there is one other benefit. And I think if they can keep it to nonspecific issues, if they can make sure that they don't target one side of the aisle more than the other, then I think this could be a good thing at the end of the day, especially for people growing up with these sort of preemptive videos telling them you need to take a more cautious look when you're on the internet. Don't believe everything you see firsthand, even if it comes from Google or Microsoft or a accredited authoritative source. I think there is a value to that. But at the end of the day, like I said, it can be twisted and we have to be very careful when moving forward. So they did test a similar system in Eastern Europe last fall. Quote, Google launched the largest test of the theory so far with a pre-bunking video campaign in Poland, the Czech Republic, and Slovakia. The videos dissected different techniques seen in false claims about Ukraine refugees. Many of those claims relied on arming and unfounded stories about refugees committing crimes or taking jobs away from residents. The videos were seen 38 million times on Facebook, TikTok, YouTube, and Twitter, a number that equates to a majority of the population in the three nations. Researchers found that compared to people who, didn't have, who hadn't seen the videos, those who did watch were more likely and able to identify misinformation techniques and less likely to spread false claims to others. And, end quote. And this is why I, I highlighted this one very specifically, because... They said that this will be very general. It will be, oh, these are misinformation techniques. This is how different people use strategies, little idioms or statistical tricks to get you to believe something. It's not going to be targeted at specific issues. But then they turn to an example. They give an example of them addressing a very specific issue of Ukrainian refugee perception inside a country. And what's even more scary, in my opinion, is it worked. It actually made people... I'm not saying that they should be spreading false information about Ukraine, but they chose a specific issue, and they were able to get the people that watched it to be less likely to take in the false claims. On its face, that's great. But like I said, imagine they don't like the new food pyramid... For some reason, carnivore diets are really taking off. Maybe Google doesn't really like carnivore diets. 
and they start a preemptive campaign against carnivore diets, and they ruin the businesses of multiple people who are selling carnivore diets online. Think about it that way. And I'm not saying you have to agree with a carnivore diet, but just think about the amount of power that this gives Google if these pre-bunking videos work and they're willing to address very specific issues. So yeah, is it a slippery slope? Is that scary to y'all? Because it is scary to me, and I don't like hearing it personally. And then the question becomes, could they condition people to not preemptively accept a narrative like I was speaking about, that they just hit you with so much pre-bunking information about a certain topic that you're conditioned immediately when you hear anything about it to say, oh, yeah, I knew that misinformation was coming. I knew that they were going to try something like that, and I'm not even going to give them the time of the day. When they could have a legitimate point among terrible points, or it could just be that all their points are legitimate. It's just that Google has conditioned you to just say, oh, no, that, that narrative, that's just wrong ahead of time. I know that it's false information. And that is not a fun prospect to think about. It actually limits critical thinking. And this amount of power in the hands of one company, in the hands of Google, and then working in coordination with governments is not what we want to see at the end of the day. Because Google may be helping with these misinformation narratives, but who's going to direct them at the end of the day? Is it going to be Google, which I don't trust anyway, or are they also going to be involved with the governments of the countries that are employing them to run these pre-bunking campaigns? And then at that point, we have to ask ourselves, do we want the government that we may not trust to tell us what is and isn't misinformation? It feels like another arm of the government surveillance and information state reaching into our lives and saying, no, no, you can't think that. You have to think this. And that is not a fun prospect. And I know I've said that a whole bunch of times, but it's true. And I'm not trying to be a fear monger. I'm not trying to scare you. I'm trying to highlight what I find to be scary. And it's because this hits on a little bit of a deeper level because this has always been a concern of mine. And if it's not a concern of yours, good on you. Thank you for listening this far. And I'm, like I said, I'm not trying to fear monger. These are just genuine questions that we need to ask moving forward into an era of more and more information and more people claiming that there's more misinformation and trying to crack down on the free speech of others. But like the vaccine, once is not enough. One of these videos isn't enough. Let me read you a quote. Quote, Meta has incorporated pre-bunking into many different media literacy and anti-misinformation campaigns in recent years, the company told the Associated Press in an email statement. They include a 2021 program in the U.S. that offered media literacy training about COVID-19 to Black, Latino, and Asian American communities. Participants who took the training were later tested and found to be far more resistant to misleading COVID-19 claims. Pre-bunking comes with the, its own challenges. The effects of the videos eventually wears off, requiring the use of periodic booster videos they said that unironically, by the way. Also, the video must be crafted well enough to hold the viewer's attention and tailored for different languages, cultures, and demographics. And like a vaccine, it's not 100% effective for everyone. End quote. So we're going to have to keep turning to Google to give us our monthly 
or maybe weekly or even daily misinformation training. It's just a system that does not inspire confidence in me, if I'm being honest. Quote, together with traditional journalism, content moderation, and other methods of combating misinformation, pre-bunking could help communities reach a kind of herd immunity when it comes to misinformation, limiting its spread and its impact. And notice what the author does here, well, end quote. Notice what the author does here. With a nice assortment of, oh, yes, you can have your, your main course of traditional journalism, and then on the side you can have your content moderation, It has a little bit of a finisher. You'll have your normal uh, misinformation critics. And then, you know, actually, before all of this, we'll start you off with a nice hot cup of pre-bunking. It's just, it never ends. It never ends. At the end of the day, there's always another layer. There's always more information to combat. And therefore, they're always going to have to add another layer of telling you how to think, what to think, why to think it. And I just want you to think critically when you see something like this. And it may sound great on its face. And it may be a good thing. I'm not actually, I'm not actually saying that this isn't a good thing. Because it could come out and actually help a lot of people and stop a lot of misinformation. But the source of it, while maybe being good, could be used in a way that is not the most beneficial for everybody in a nation or in our society. And I think these are serious questions that we need to address and keep in the back of our minds. Because at the end of the day, these companies, they are massive and powerful, but we still, like I said at the very beginning with the daily debate, we still choose to give them power. We still use their search engines We still go on their platforms and give them our data so that they can sell to advertisers. And if there's any point where you read this and you say, you know what, I really don't like what they're doing with pre-bunking. I don't want them to have my data to sell, and therefore I don't want them to have the financial resources to invest in this. Go right ahead. I'm not saying I'm quite there yet because at the end of the day, I think we just need to be vigilant rather than outright cutting off their money. But if you want to do that, Go right ahead. That's your prerogative. And, you know, put your money where your mouth is. Maybe I should start doing that, too. Maybe I should start using Brave a lot more exclusively than I use Chrome. And, you know, Google, if somehow you're listening to this, I'm sorry. Just create a Brave-like server and maybe we can talk. All right, let's jump to our second article. This one comes from the Wall Street Journal. The AI boom that could make Google and Microsoft even more powerful. So as you know, Google and Microsoft are two of the most powerful companies in the world. Google, with almost all of its data analytics, the amount of information it gets from search, the AI programs it's been working on, its huge data storage houses where it's constantly training its AI on the data that you give it and all of us give it when we're searching online. And then Microsoft one of the largest companies selling B2B products, Microsoft Word, Office, 360, Microsoft Azure, their cloud-based services. They're selling a lot of these to businesses, and the business world is hooked. They love Microsoft. They're very well integrated, and they've captured a lot of the market. So these are two of the world's largest companies and very deeply integrated into the way that we go about living our lives, especially for a business person like me. There's no way you can get away from Microsoft. And there's definitely no way you can get away from Google. So 
But now they've kind of taken their battle, which has been in different regions, different areas. Then again, Microsoft, like I said, did go into cloud computing with Azure to compete with Google. And Google opened up workspaces to compete with Office 360. So they have been fighting on the edges a little bit. But now it's the battle of the AI. And they both have their different systems. Google with BARD and Microsoft with ChatGPT and their recent acquisition. Quote, when AI is delivering answers, it's not just information for us to base decisions on. We're going to have to trust it much more deeply than we would have before. This new generation of chat-based search engines are better described as, quote, answer engines that can, in a sense, show their work by giving us links to web pages they deliver and summarize. But for an answer engine to have real utility, we're going to have to trust it enough most of the time that we accept those answers at face value. The same will be true of the tools that help generative text, spreadsheets, codes, images, and anything else we create on our devices. Some version of which both Microsoft and Google have promised to offer with their existing productivity services, Microsoft 365 and Google Workspace, end quote. So why I thought this article was interesting is because it highlights two important parts of a story that I, well, it highlights one part of a story I read the other day and a thought I've been having for a long time, which is, one, can we really trust these AI programs? We have to really sit down and say, well, they were programmed by people. And at the end of the day, people have agendas. People have biases. So can we really trust their results? There's also a limited amount of training data. It cannot give, they cannot use their computer power, even though they have a massive amount of computing power. They cannot sit down and give it every single bit of information that is out there online. And they don't necessarily want to. I mean, there are terrible claims and terrible pieces of information, videos, texts out there that call for violence against people, and you don't want the AI to be trained on that sort of information. So, you know, there's this big question, can we trust these AI programs that are made by people that have their biases and cannot encompass all different types of information? And with both of these companies trying to integrate these AI systems into their search engines that already provides some misleading information sometimes, can we really trust these AI programs? I would argue that no, we can't always trust them. They're not perfectly refined yet. But both of these companies, feeling the pressure from one another, are rolling these out full force. And I think that's scary, because at the end of the day, this is still a developing technology. I believe... ChatGBT, the company or the program that Microsoft bought, has only been in development for four years. And obviously there was Chat One, ChatGBT 1, 2, or whatever the previous iterations are. And I'm including those in my four-year estimate. So this is a new technology. It's not 100% tested yet. But it does open up a huge market opportunity for both Google and Microsoft. Because now they can relay information in a way that seems a little bit more confident because they're trying to relay it as if a human's talking to you. Because if you've used ChatGPT, it really spits things out in a human-like manner. And it kind of has a certain level of confidence behind it. It says things in a way that seem convincing. 
And I think that is dangerous at the end of the day when we already have so many different pieces of information out there on the internet that aren't necessarily accurate. And it's pulling on those and it's putting those results to you in a very confident manner. That's scary. But also we have to remember as this AI revolution comes about, it is a way, whether it is refined or not, these tools are going to exist and companies are going to start using them. They're going to start relying on them. And then they're going to become locked into these systems at Google Workspace or Microsoft 365 and constantly keep funneling their money to these companies because they have AI tools that, while, like I said, are not infallible, they have their biases, they are going to provide some value. And that is a beautiful thing for business, but also a scary thing. Because remember, at the end of the day, if these AI programs are, in, are fallible and they have their biases and then they get all these different companies, all these different users hooked on using them because they feel as though, oh, the information is coming in a more convenient manner. It's saying it in a way that seems confident. It's giving me the information without me having to crawl through all these different web pages to get to it. People are going to become reliant on this. And once they are, imagine a Microsoft or Google team goes in and changes the algorithm and says, oh, well, no, you should only put out answers like this. That can greatly influence public perception on important issues. And as you've seen in previous examples, I've pointed them out on the podcast, talking about how a chat GPT spat out that Lincoln flew across the country during his campaign when he was running for president. And obviously he didn't fly across the country because they didn't have planes yet, but... It just seemed simple. And if you don't know your facts, if you're a 10-year-old reading this, you may not have the critical thinking skills built up to say, oh, no, there were no planes when Lincoln was growing up. Not even the critical thinking skills. You may just not know that information, and you may believe it. So this is something that we need to step very cautiously into, especially with the fact that both of these companies acknowledge it can make them a lot of money, and they're trying to implement it very quickly without fully testing it and making sure that everything is as reliable as it could be. Quote, the greater concentration of power is all the more important because of this technology is both incredibly powerful and inherently flawed. It has a tendency to confidently deliver incorrect information. This happens that this means that step one in making this technology mainstream is building it. And step two is minimizing the variety and number of mistakes it inevitably makes. Trust in an AI, in other words, will become a new moat for big technology companies to fight, to defend. Lose the user's trust often enough, and they might abandon your product. For example, in November, Meta made available to the public an AI chat-based search engine for scientific knowledge called Galactica. Perhaps it was part of the engine's target audience, scientists, but the incorrect answers it sometimes offered inspired much withering criticism that Meta so much withering criticism that Meta shut down public access after just three days, said the Meta chief AI scientist Yu Chen in a recent talk, end quote. And these companies' obsession with AI hasn't been a new thing. When I say that, they've been working on AI systems to amalgamate information for a long time. I've been reading a book recently, Life After Google, by John Gilbert, and... He talks about the fact that 
Google has been obsessed for a long time in trying to create an AI that knows everything. That's why they have a lot of their services be free online so that you give up your data. You feel as though you're gaining something and, oh, well, we'll sell your data to advertisers. But the main use of that data is actually sending it to giant computer databases and feeding it through AI algorithms and constantly training them over and over and over again. And what I always found interesting, and let's be clear, I don't understand the techno babble of the book as much as I would like to, but what I always found interesting is this constant pursuit towards attaining all knowledge. It's a very arrogant goal on the behalf of Google to document all knowledge that is present on the earth, all thoughts, and obviously it's almost impossible, and that's why I think it is arrogant of them, but these new AI programs... They are just the latest iteration of this. They're no longer inward-facing Google-only, Microsoft-only programs that they're running trying to gather and sort all this information and categorize everything, but now they're opening it up to the public, and they're trying to get people to utilize and understand the beauty of AI. And I think at its core, it's a great thing, but we need to be very hesitant moving forward. We need to ask, can we trust these AI programs generated by a company who actively undercuts a lot of their advertisers and gives the, us the product for free because they know it will make them more money in order to gain as much knowledge about the world as possible and create the ultimate artificial intelligence, so to speak. And yes, I am being a little bit hyperbolic from what George Gilbert and some of the other articles I've been reading say, but it's a question that we need to ask. Do we want this power to be in the hands of Google and Microsoft? Or do we want it to be decentralized? Do we want it to be on a blockchain, maybe? That's not my own idea. That's George Gilbert's idea. Or a few of the people that he's been talking to about this new economy that will emerge after Google. And these are serious questions that now that we're in the age of AI, we need to actually take into consideration. And I would suggest reading a book or two about AI and gaining a little bit more information and understanding of what these programs are actually designed to do and how they can be used in a very ethical way, not just to suck in more users and make their life easier and get them hooked on this technology so that they keep coming back. All right, I've ranted on these two for a long time, so we'll jump to our last article very, very quickly. If you can't tell, I was doing a little bit, I've been doing a little bit of a new technique, which is I have a few more quotes and I do a little bit more rambling. It's more free flowing and I kind of actually enjoy it, though I seem to get lost in thought more than I would love to. And it kind of throws off the timeline, but it is what it is. So this last one comes from Salone. Diversity, wokeness, and violent oppression. Lessons of the Tyreek Nicholas case. So I can boil this down into probably five, six words and how the author would describe it, which is diversity for the sake of diversity gets us nowhere. I would agree with that statement. The author is really more interested in diversity of class. Quote, the militarists, corporatists, oligarchs and politicians, academics and media conglomerates champion identity politics and diversity because it does nothing to address the systemic injustices or the scourge of permanent war that plagued the U.S. and its advertising gimmick, a brand. 
used to mask mounting social inequality and imperial folly. It, bru- it bruises liberals and the educated with a boutique activism, which is not only ineffectual, but exacerbates the divide between the privileged and the working class in deep, deep economic distress. The haves scold the have-nots for their bad manners, racism, linguistic insensitivity, and garishness, while ignoring the root cause of the economic distress. The oligarchs could not be happier, end quote. So, yeah, this is, I don't necessarily agree with all of the language that they use here and the have and the have-nots and the ol- just straight calling certain people oligarchs. I think there's more layers to this, but there are definitely a class of people, if you want to call it that. I would say there's a group of people who have their interests at heart. They have a large amount of money, and they want to keep it to themselves and ensure that they keep their power. And then there are the people below them that they're not willing to give to. And I think this speaks to the decay of our culture in that when you used to have very rich people, very often you would see them increase their giving. If it was a Christian society, they would be encouraged to give their money to church, to different charities, to people less well off than them. But now you have a culture where, oh, no, no, more, 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 greedy, greedy, give me, give me, give me. And they concentrate their wealth at the top. They give it to one another in these elite circles and ensure that they can keep their grips over the control board, essentially. And I think that that is the message that this author is getting at that I really do agree with. And I think when they break it down, they start talking about the fact that at the end of the day, We've had a black president. We've had Clarence Thomas on the Supreme Court, the first Native American president. We've had women at the CIA. All of these people trying to promote diversity, and yet Clarence Thomas doesn't always vote on policies that this author would argue help black communities. Obama didn't heal the nation and end the racial strife. It actually became worse after his presidency. The first Native American vice president actually signed a law that made it easier to take away Native lands. And the women that were hired to the CIA didn't actually move the feminist dial in any way whatsoever. And what the author's trying to get at and highlight here is just because you hire someone for diversity, just because they are a woman, just because they are African American, just because they are of a particular group, does not necessarily mean that they are going to help that group or that they're going to pursue what makes that group better off. They're actually going to pursue what makes them better off. And that's where the the author doesn't actually say that. He or they try to make it more of a issue of, well, they've been promoted there, they've been chosen by the elite class to make sure that, you know, it represents diversity, but it doesn't actually do anything. They're just going to sit on their hands. They're just going to do what we tell them to do. But I think is more important, what should be the message, is we can't divide people and put them in these boxes and expect them to represent the entire box. That's called stereotyping. That's called generalizing. And that, at the end of the day, it's virtue signaling to insist that, oh, yeah, if we just put a person of a particular community here, it will help the people of that community. That's virtue signaling. It doesn't actually get anything done. 
and we need to see ourselves as individuals looking at the content of our character. I know that quote from Martin Luther King gets used all the time, but because it's so beautiful, it's true. Look beyond the surface level, superficial baloney and ask, is this a person that I want to represent me in Congress? Is this a person I want to represent me in the presidency? And not, oh, do they check these boxes? And are they diverse for the sake of being diverse? And I think that's what the author is really getting at, or at least that's what spoke to me when reading it. And obviously I'm interpreting. But I think that that's the valuable lesson that we can take away from what they're saying. And if you want to read this in its entirety and hear more of the economic uh, haves versus have-nots argument, you can. I just don't necessarily agree with everything they're saying. And I wanted to take the core of their message and the really important parts that I do agree with and expand upon them. But, of course, you know, we're running out of time. It's running a little bit long, so let's jump to our daily delight. This one comes from the Dodo. Women leaves dog at home alone and comes back to shocking note on her door. So people leave dotes, notes, mail, brochures on people's door all the time. But imagine getting one that says, quote, Hi, we found your dog on your roof. We climbed up and put him back into the house and then closed the window. Cheers from the park people, end quote. So apparently this woman's roommate had made it move something that made it easy for the dog to get out of an open window. Quote, Zar had no idea about Billy's adventures until she found the note on her door. When she went inside, she found Billy safe and sound in the living room, the happy pup wagging his tail in delight as if nothing had happened, end quote. And yeah, dogs really do get up to some crazy stuff when we're not in the house, don't they? And if you want to see any of the cute videos or photos of Billy, or if you want to read any of the articles in their entirety, there will be a link in the description below that like and subscribe button where you can find all of them. And also down there, you will see the links to the Spotify, Pocket Cast, Podvine, anywhere that you can, for the most part, Google Podcasts, anywhere I have the podcast posted, you can go there, download it, and take it on the go. With all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.